You're listening to a Let's Know Things interstitial. I'm Colin Wright. So the very first interstitial episode was recorded and published over a year ago, and it was published into the general stream, and I got some good feedback on it, and people enjoyed it, but I think it also interrupted the stream a little bit. It interrupted the process, and people listened to it expecting to hear a normal episode, and were therefore a little bit disappointed because it was not the usual format, the usual length, and so on. And so I'm hoping that presenting this within the Patreon stream will make a little bit more sense as it will be presented to people who are already patrons of the show and therefore might be a little bit more interested in what's happening on the back end than the general listening public. Now that said, this type of episode is serving as a bit of a catch-all, a way to update folks on what I'm thinking, the way I'm producing things, any announcements that I might have to make, and as a place to answer questions you might have, kind of an ask-me-anything AMA format. So if you have any other ideas of things that you'd like me to include in future interstitial episodes, do let me know. Otherwise, each time I'm getting ready to put one together, I will post within the Patreon a request for questions. So if you have anything that you're dying to ask and that you think might be interesting to hear me respond to audibly, that would be the place to do it. Now, a quick update on how the show is doing. I've been hardened to see that since that last interstitial, which took place right before episode 10, we're now on episode 63, I believe. But in the time between, growth has been slow but steady. And that's the way that I've actually preferred it. I always envisioned this thing growing slowly and steadily in a sustainable way, rather than me finding myself with a million listeners overnight which would be a difficult adjustment to make. Whereas the way things have been going, there has been growth. It's been kind of word of mouth style growth, which is great because that means one, it's growing in such a way that the culture around the show is more sustainable and transferable and communicable to the new people joining in rather than having the numbers double overnight and therefore it being an entirely new culture overnight. But it's also nice in that that means the people coming in tend to be the type of person who's interested in this show to begin with. They are looking for this type of information. They are enthusiastic and curious people. And I think that is a huge part of why these numbers have been growing so steadily and so solidly over the past year. And in particular, I've been super excited to see that the archive of older episodes has had such strong traffic. Every time a new episode lands, there's a large number of people who check that out within a couple of days of it hitting their podcatcher app. But in between new episodes, there is a steady amount of traffic to every other episode that has been published up until that point. And that's what I was really hoping for from the beginning to produce podcast episodes that were not so of the moment that they don't make sense a week or a month or a year later. That, to me, was not the way that I wanted to cover current events. So even though each episode is kind of tied to a news article of the moment, I wanted to make sure that it was evergreen enough that it was still relevant whenever you might happen to tune into it. So it's been really heartening to see that that's presumably at least been the case based on the numbers that I'm seeing. Now, to give an idea of the numbers involved, within the next month or two, I believe, we should be reaching the 
1 million download mark, which is a nice symbolic milestone. Now that's downloads, remember, not subscribers. So that means the total downloads of all episodes by all people. So it's not a million subscribers. That would be pretty cool too. And hopefully someday that's a number that would be attainable by this show. But as of right now, a million downloads is still pretty epic, especially for a show that's kind of this niche. It's not a typical genre. It's not a typical show format. And it's not attached to any existing brand. And so I'm, I'm super excited to have that type of milestone arrive so relatively early. I didn't expect it to happen this early on in the process. I've got these long-term goals set for this show. So that's been a really nice surprise to have that arrive at this point already. Another really heartening statistic is that geographically, only about 61.5% of listeners of Let's Know Things are here in the U.S., which I think is amazing, personally. U.S. listeners are great and very much appreciated, but I did always hope to have a show that was internationally relatable to folks outside the U.S. I didn't want to become so U.S.-centric that what I was talking about simply didn't make sense or wasn't relatable in any way. So even though I use the U.S. as a starting point for a lot of my discussions, it's good to know that a little over 8% of the listeners come from the U.K., a little more than 5.5% come from Canada, and about the same in Australia, a little over 3% come from Ireland, and then a full 16.01% come from an assemblage of other countries that include China, Mexico, Vietnam, Iceland, Saudi Arabia, Tanzania, and the Russian Federation. And there are monthly listeners that tune in from 180 different countries. And I just think that's freaking fantastic. So a huge thanks to everybody who is listening wherever you happen to be from in the world. I very much appreciate you spending some time with me each week. Now, one of the recent posts that I shared on Patreon was a request for some questions that I might answer on this interstitial episode. So now I'm going to take a few minutes to answer those that came in this first time around. The first question is as such. I'd be curious to hear the Cliff Notes story of how you ended up doing your first TED Talk in Cambodia and why. Well, as of today, I have presented four different TEDx talks, one in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, one in Whitefish, Montana, here in the U.S., one in Maastricht, Netherlands, and one in Lyon, France. And all of them were a lot of fun. They definitely varied substantially based on the groups putting them on and the location. But that first one back in 2011 in Cambodia was fairly special in a lot of ways because one, TEDx was still quite new. And so it was still kind of a different thing. Most people had not given one at that point, whereas today, it's not fair to say that everyone's given a TEDx talk, but a lot more people have given them because they are all over the place. And so that is a double-edged sword in that it's great that more people now have a platform and a means of speaking to perhaps a different audience or a larger audience than usual. But it's also created a situation where the quality has varied a whole lot more. And so consequently, it's a little less impressive to do a TEDx talk today than it was back in the day. But that was also an interesting experience in that one, it was one of the first big talks I gave to a larger audience outside of like a school audience or something like that. It was also one of my first experiences in giving a talk 
while incredibly sick. I was just so sick with food poisoning and incredible allergies and some type of throat bug that was going around. And so on the way to the private school where that event took place in Phnom Penh, the driver of the carriage that I was in, I had him pull over to the side of the road where there was this like roadside pharmacy, which is essentially a guy with a table with a little cross on it, piled high with boxes and pill canisters. And I just kind of faked coughing and grabbed my throat to show him what was wrong. He handed me a bunch of different things. I took one of each and it opened up my throat and dulled the pain in my stomach just long enough for me to give that talk. But my God, I was in such bad shape that entire talk. And also you tend to look back on any old talk. I feel if you do anything like this long enough, this is the case, but with speaking in particular, because you have video evidence of it, and you know what was going on in your own head at that point, it's a lot easier to go back and see nothing but the bad stuff. So for me, it's one of the worst talks I've ever given, but because one, it's an older talk, so it's been around longer. Two, it landed back when TEDx was still a new thing. And three, it was on a topic that hadn't really been addressed in that format before. It's still one of the more trafficked of my talks, I think, on the internet at this point. So that's always the case, I find. It's always your oldest and least favorite work that people know about. It's the same with books and anything else that you might do. But I ended up there basically because they invited me. And that's been the case with every TEDx talk that I've given. The organizers have invited me to come give the talk. Sometimes they have something in mind already. Sometimes you pitch them on a concept after they've invited you. And then typically with TEDx talks, there's no payment. In some cases, they can help you out with transportation, but usually not even that. So with TEDx stuff, I typically will do it if I'm going to be in the area anyway. And the next question, and I'm paraphrasing this a little bit just to make it more clear when speaking it out loud. Are you restricting your diet for ethical reasons, except when it's too restrictive when traveling to different parts in the world? That would seem to be in line with your ethics to be vegan right now. Am I making the wrong assumptions? Now, my answer to that would be that you're not making the right assumption, but you're also not making an entirely wrong assumption. Left to my own devices, just living alone, eating alone, making all my own food, I tend to eat a mainly like 95% vegetarian diet. That's not for ethical reasons. It's more just because it's what I prefer. I feel healthiest eating that way. And I prefer to eat that way typically when not in social situations and not going out and eating radically different food all the time because of travel or whatever other reason. But at the same time, although I do try to avoid harming other sapient or near sapient creatures, I also recognize that circumstantially, that's not always practical. As you mentioned, I think in your question that when you're traveling in a lot of places, meat is something that's fairly luxurious. And if somebody that you're staying with offers you meat, it would be a huge insult not to eat it, even if you have this really great ideology behind your reasons not for doing so. So that's part of the excuse is that it's limiting in that way. But I also try to avoid labels and I try to avoid hardcore restrictions of any kind. And so even though a lot of my philosophy would aim me in that direction toward ideologies like that, that would then cause me to take that type of action like a vegan might with their, their habits and their diet. Some of my other philosophies which supersede that are about staying malleable and trying to avoid limiting my capacity to have new experiences, my ability to seek out novelty, my ability to do new things, to taste new things. 
And frankly, any type of dietary restriction would conflict with that fairly dramatically. And even if I told myself I'm going to be a vegan, except in situations where it doesn't make sense to do so, well then what's the point of the label? And so what I prefer is to avoid labels wholesale. And to say that most of the time I do this, but I don't when it doesn't make sense to do so. And there are a lot of circumstances where it just does not make sense for me, according to my moral standards and all the trade-offs that are inherent with that, to live the same way that a vegan might, or even a vegetarian might. And even though I still cringe a little bit anytime I'm served octopus, for instance, which is an animal that, for some reason, more than most animals, I feel a great deal of empathy for, it's still something that I recognize on a truly pragmatic, practical level. This octopus is already dead. Me eating this or not eating this is unlikely to contribute to the economics of eating octopus, depending on the circumstances where I'm eating it, at least. And if I limit myself in this circumstance, then I will be setting myself up to put a ceiling on my life for other experiences as well. And that's not something that I'm willing to do at this point. So that's something that will be an unsatisfactory answer to a lot of people, I think, particularly people who are more comfortable or even in favor of particular types of labels. I, I totally understand that. But for me and the way that I try to live, trying to avoid any hard set limitations of that kind and trying to avoid tribalism as well to a certain degree, that's the approach that makes the most sense for me. And then that same person asked a second follow-up question. Do you feel obligated to help others, as in devote your life to effective altruism? The short answer to that is no. I do not feel obligated to be altruistic. The somewhat longer answer is that I do not feel obligated, but I think that it is a good thing to do. And I think we all have different powers in this regard, different ways that we can optimally provide while still being sustainable as an individual internally. Basically, the considerations will be different for each and every person if we each want to be capable of taking care of ourselves and living well, whatever that might mean, according to our own personal standards, but doing that in a way that also allows us to be altruistic, whether that means figuring out ways to donate money to the right causes, or whether that means spreading the word about ideas or causes you think are important. It's very possible to be so altruistic that you allow yourself to turn into a, a skeleton of yourself because you give so much that you have nothing left for yourself. I think it's super important to take care of yourself to make sure that you are sturdy enough to then take any excess that you generate and provide that to the world, hopefully, in some way. I don't think anybody should feel compelled to do it, but I think it's wonderful when they do. And so for me, I tend to like the idea of creating value generators, I guess, value generating assets, flywheels that you can invest in once or a little bit over time, which then continue to generate value over time, more than you put into them. And in a lot of cases, this is because I'm not wealthy and I don't have an abundance of excess money to spend. And so for me, that tends to mean investing in people by helping them in little ways where I can. It means investing in producing artifacts, producing books or blog posts or other things that I can write once, but then they can have potentially infinite value forever after that. Producing guides and writing emails and, and even just telling stories in some cases can be the right words to the right person at the right time, which then ends up producing massively more value than you would expect from the investment of simply taking some time to tell that story. And so there's a lot of different ways to do this. For other people, money will be the much better way to be altruistic. 
And that's absolutely wonderful too. It's totally necessary. I think we've all got a role to play if we choose to play that role. But I am not convinced on the theoretical level that people who have a lot and do not give to society are wrong in an absolute sense. Now, according to my standards, that's kind of a waste and perhaps even douchebaggy, depending on the circumstances. But I also think that the concept of altruism suffers a bit if we enshrine it in law or make it socially mandatory. I feel like it's a more compelling concept when it is something that we figure out for ourselves based on our own skills and resources and priorities. The next question, other than writing, is there another career or careers that would be in line with your values? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I'm I'm super appreciative of good journalists and scientists and business people who juggle vast enterprises that end up improving the world for vast swaths of humanity. Now, whether I'd be any good at those things is debatable. I certainly don't have the education to be a scientist. And I was a journalist, kind of, for a brief time, but I discovered during that time that I was a lot better at taking the news and explaining it to people, essentially, through news analysis pieces. So I think there are a lot of careers that would be aligned with what I believe, but whether or not they would have me, first of all, And whether or not that would be the best use of my time for the outcome that I would like to see is very much up for debate. And then the final question for this episode. What are your thoughts on Ayn Rand and objectivism? Would you consider yourself a selfish or altruistic person? A lot of questions about altruism. My answer to this is that I really enjoyed Ayn Rand's work back in my teenage years and early 20s. And The Fountainhead, I thought, was a great read, and Atlas Shrugged in particular provided me with a message that I really needed to hear at that point in my life. Essentially, that it's okay to be self-deterministic, to be capable and strong, and to feel like you see solutions to problems that other people don't see, and then to try to apply those solutions, despite the existing gatekeepers and structure telling you that that's not okay or even necessary. That was a super valuable thing for me to learn at the beginning of my entrepreneurial career. But the more I learned about how other people were reading those same stories, the way that they were interpreting the message, and then the more I read of Ayn Rand's work, and the more I heard her speak during interviews and such in particular, the more I came to realize that I was kind of taking the pieces that I liked from those stories and ignoring or not even consciously recognizing, in a lot of cases, other parts that have provided other people with excuses to do things that I do not consider to be particularly moral things. I don't think that anyone should feel compelled to be altruistic, for instance, as I mentioned, but I also think that celebrating and deifying the idea of dividing the world into supermen and those who should more or less worship the supermen is a bit much. I also think that it is wonderful to celebrate capability and to encourage and incentivize the creation of things. But a lot of Rand's ideas about society and about why some people succeed and others don't, and about government and bureaucracy too, to a certain degree, I think it lacks a lot of context. It fails to take into consideration any perspective beyond the very narrow context that she had. It's very much of her era, very much of her class position, 
And it's a message that as a result tends to be incredibly appealing to a privileged few who cannot figure out why everyone else isn't as awesome as they are. And, and that's a broad brush to paint people with. And a lot of people, I think, take very different things from her message. But in general, having both seen and done more myself to, to see the world from different angles and from more perspectives, but also having a better understanding of what it is she was writing and a better understanding of the philosophy itself, I disagree with it now probably like 70% of the time. And I do still think that there's probably 30% of really solid ideology there and really interesting, compelling things. It's just that as a totality, I would not associate myself with objectivism or Rand's writing today. If you have a question that you'd like me to answer in a future interstitial episode, you can either send that to me as a message on Patreon, or you can wait until the next post that I will publish on the Patreon page a week or two before I produce the next interstitial episode. Once more, a huge thanks for your patronage. It means a whole lot. And if you have any questions or comments about this episode in particular, feel free to leave them on the relevant post within the Patreon community. I'll see you guys there. Mm-hmm.